right now I'm mostly doing music or live performances actually um, I'm sometimes doing an installation if I'm asked but I kind of reduced this for now at least because I felt sometimes I was not really in face with the contemporary art world even though uh, sound art is a little bit on the fringe sometimes we're not exactly in that but uh, it felt like in terms of uh, audience you could move much more things with music actually or what can be understood somehow as music even if it's sound performance because I always saw I feel like music in general is something that everybody shares basically it's a pretty much almost a universal thing I guess uh, and it's not necessarily the case for what is known as contemporary art. So I always have my doubt with this. And so for me, it's not only making music, it's also f uh, reflecting on music as a social practice, actually. Jessica Eckelman is a sound artist and composer. Her quadraphonic performances and installations approach algorithmic and computer music as a social practice that is grounded in questions such as the relationship between individual perception and collective dynamics, and explore listening expectations and their societal roots. Jessica Eckelman's pieces unfold as static situations in which change happens not in sequences, but in the slowly shifting relationship between the elements and events in each composition. This allows her to play with space and with the perception of rhythmic structures, noise, and melody in a kind of psychoacoustic experiment that carries with it the possibility of catharsis and emancipation. In this podcast, Jessica Coman talks about the freedom of play, e-mule, pipe organs, the limitations and flexibility of Max MSP, early non-Western sound synthesis, DIY research, minimalism, and her early love for Ligeti and Destiny's Child.
when I grew up, it felt like um, I was I would never get into those spheres of what is seen as high cultural culture, just or I didn't think of myself as someone that can, um, or even the people around me, nobody thought themselves as having the possibility to uh, have an influence in the public space, for for example, or, you know, that your speech is important or things like this. I mean, coming more from a working class background, it was not, it was France, but it was not, uh, it was a small village. Uh, part of my family is from Cameroon. I have this different heritage, etc. Around me, it was mostly people working in factories or, you know, truck driver, uh, people cleaning, so things like this. So, but there this this impression that it's like, it's all fate. We are stuck there, whatever we want to do somehow. Nobody believed in meritocracy. I mean, it was almost like like some kind of really heavy thing that everybody's carrying. Yeah, we are exploited. Uh, we can't do anything in this life, but we have to accept that there is kind of like uh, immobility uh, that uh, was really heavy for me. Uh, and this is where doing what I do was emancipatory, maybe gaining some sort of uh, agency. So while this was happening, I mean, it's something that you carry with you, I think, always. And it's not so common, actually, I realize also in the art world to have people with this kind of background. So I feel like maybe it's a way for me to also express this, maybe for lack of uh, being able to talk with people that's now, maybe people are more aware, but there were a time when people thought really that we were in a meritocracy and that's it, like... You know, you can't really talk about it. It makes people uncomfortable. This world is fair, etc. So I'm my own guinea pig, as I say sometimes. Like it's all based on my. I'm experimenting socially on myself also. I've been doing this my whole life. You know, when I was growing up, for example, I remember still this time where entering a museum was kind of a frightening experience for me in some way because you can feel. You can't see it, but you feel those different worlds uh, kind of colliding with each other. You can feel in the way people are moving, in the way they are pressing themselves, expressing themselves. Um, you feel like you're in, how uh, to say, like you feel those power dynamics really strongly, and this can make people feel really uncomfortable. It made me feel uncomfortable at the time. But at the same time, I wanted to go there because I felt like, okay, there's no law that prevents me to go there. So physically, I'm able to. <laughs> I want to kind of change this dynamic. I don't want to be my life to be decided by this arbitrary thing. And it can be, I mean, it's not only this. It's also you enter and then, you know, you see the security and then maybe they are following you or they are looking at you at a different way. You're used to interact with those kind of people in a certain way and then it finds itself there. It reproduces itself there. It's like a kind of set of complex thing. So, yeah, I mean, today I think it's more about uh, access to knowledge and resources, actually. I mean, you still need a computer. Uh, maybe it's not our Mac for certain software even. It's not necessarily something that everybody can have. Uh, you also need time. <laughs> it's not necessarily that it's some, something that everybody has. And also just the, the fact of let's say there's some kind of stigma about who has this knowledge or who it belongs to still, I feel. Maybe when I'm teaching, this is something that I'm trying to emphasize. It depends on the context, but uh, I kind of always talk about my background because I feel like 
when I was younger also, like I was searching for this kind of person to talk about that because it feels like there's nobody like me there. There's a reason why, because I cannot access it, you know? So I think it's important also to be transparent with this. I think there's still a lot of work to do with that somehow. I grew up in a time where it, we could have personal computers and then all this thing of like emul and stuff like this, like, you know, finding music, downloading music on the internet appeared. And for me, it was, was a good thing because there were no, there were no uh, music shops, you know, where to, you could talk to and then someone would can advise you or even if it would have been, maybe I wouldn't have been comfortable there because maybe then the person assume you're interested in certain things and then, you know, there you don't want to get into that. So there was this freedom of like just being able to search by myself and there's nobody that is going to gatekeep it or talk to you with condescendence or things like this. But yeah, I mean, maybe arriving to Berlin, maybe more than the academia, what was important is to find people that have the same interests and be in an environment around people that talk about this all the time. Also finding, uh, for example, with women talking about the, some of them were older, so talking about the difficulties they have had over the year, doing electronic music as a woman, etc. So this was more influential than sitting in a seminar, you know? Uh, and also because suddenly, like, Maybe I knew about Max MSP before, for example, but I always thought that I can't do it. I remember I downloaded it once and I looked at it. I thought, oh, it's too complicated. And, you know, you have nobody to dialogue with. And I just uh, didn't go forward. And only later, when I was in an environment where it seems accessible, then I went over this first kind of uh, learning curve. And also, I think maybe in some studies, especially at the time, it was not so defined. There are a little bit, it's, I mean, some way still, even though there's more interest around sound studies and sound culture right now, but it felt like this gray area was a lot of freedom for me, you know. It felt like it was more difficult for me in the academia in France. I studied also art history before this, and I did a bachelor in art history. And it was much more old school and uh, much more, you know, it's called art history, but it's... Uh, European art or white men, <laughs> uh, European white men art. And also is this narrative of, uh, it kind of follow like this idea that uh, art is progressing, society is progressing toward modernity and things like all these tropes. Uh, this was felt more oppressive for me than just being in Berlin, learning about sound somehow. And also now I'm not, I mean, I'm teaching in sound studies, but it's also quite relaxed for me at least. And it's kind of a family thing. And uh, I'm not a researcher also. Uh, I'm not writing a PhD at the moment or what. I'm really concentrating on my art practice. So I also have this little uh, piece of freedom there. At the time, I knew one person that told me about Yakam and told me, like, yeah, sometimes I'm helping doing field recordings there. And it felt like, okay, like, how can I enter there? And then he told me, yeah, you call Pierre Boulez and then you ask him for a job. And so this is what I did. I remember I seated, like, I searched for the Yakam number, like, on the telephone book or something. 
And so I sit for a few days and then I call and I ask for Pierre Boulez. And of course, they were like, sorry, who are you? But then they, somehow they told me, okay, you can come and you can just have a look for one hour. We make you a tour of your cam and stuff. And it was such a big uh, change for me, like a victory. I was like, oh my God, I can enter there. I thought it was just like, most people, you know, it's like the social elite. They don't even belong to this life or something like that. Uh, so it was the first way for me to kind of... Uh, making this as a possibility or like a concrete experience, you know, like, so there's already this idea of entering physically somewhere and making the experience of entering physically somewhere, you know. Yeah, and so I guess, I mean, now somehow I don't really feel like, uh, I mean, if you do experimental music, it's not for everybody anyway, it's kind of a niche thing, but uh, let's say I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily attracted by elitism or I don't necessarily want to reproduce this experience. So I'm okay with the fact that I'm not going to play in Super Bowl uh, with that. <laughs> it's not a problem, but not everybody listens to the same type of music. But just in the approach, somehow, I don't see why it needs to be like that. I mean, especially when we look back at history and we see how much inequality there was and uh, how much of some of it is uh, uh, reflective of a bigger failure of society. I was keeping it for myself as many other people because if the culture is not here for people to take interest in it, I mean, you could say things, but then, you know, it go for one year and it go out on the other. So at the time, people were not so receptive. When you would exchange about inequality in general, so just uh, about class, etc., with other people, it felt like it was not resonating with many, you know? It's like, oh, it's like this anyway, we cannot change, like everybody's just following the motion. So I definitely realized that this is like uh, to that scale of awareness now. I'm still not big enough, maybe, but this is quite new. I think this is why it went into my practice because it felt also it's the best way to prove a point or to show something else is to do it, you know. Uh, instead of trying to convince people that anyway are going to try to say yes, but or you know, and this is kind of still my ethos now in some way. And maybe this is why I say I was not a researcher. I do I do research, <laughs> but uh, really my point is more really to to build a practice around this and practice not only artistic practice but also uh, social practice or like you know how I work with other people, no matter if some people are trying to countering this movement now or anything. But definitely, I mean, in my daily life experience, for example, I will see changes. I mean, just the fact that we have this conversation now, I'm not sure we would have talked about this subject some years ago, you know? Or, uh, I mean, also that I would have been so open talking about it. It's like, I don't know. I always think, like, uh, changes are good anyway, even if they are too small. It's some kind of change. If it's like you gain a little bit more freedom to talk about this thing, this is a good thing. So, I don't know. Sometimes some people ask me to make predictions for the future somehow. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it'll make a little noise. That's true. Yeah, it woke me up a little bit. Yeah, I find it went back. Yeah, she gets, she gets, she gets by me and lay by me when she gets nervous. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Yeah, it was so. 
I thought, it's getting a little lighter. I thought it was going to rain again. It's getting a little darker. I told my sister, I want to go back to bed. It's getting darker. Oh, I think it's eating about 1 o'clock. Yeah, 3 o'clock on, uh, yeah. I, I, I can get that, so it's on at 3 o'clock, right? My relationship was always yeah, this, uh, citizen Ben thing is, uh, yeah. as I mentioned maybe in our conversation yeah, before, yeah, it's like I come from this more working class background, it was also more um, countryside, actually my own father is also a truck driver, and uh, we have some friends in the family, I remember like this one family, uh, this person is like a more like a car mechanician, Anyway, was like a hobbyist uh, using this uh, shortwave radio to communicate with other people short distance, you know. And I was always fascinated to pass by, and then you know, it's like your own personal space. He was having so many, so much fun talking with those people, kind of almost being an almost uh, another person, you know, that you don't know. Um, because the fact that you don't know who they are, you don't see them, it kind of frees you from one part of your. And identity that you inhabit every day, somehow, like you know, it makes you more. Or oh, this was my my impression at the time. And uh, what is interesting is when you broadcast it on the, the the national radio, is that it's also it's similar medium of communications, but in the same time, it's used differently. Um, you know, with national radio, you're broadcasting for an audience is just one way, and this other one is like conversation and so as a audience of the radio when you're listening to this suddenly you're not addressed anymore you're like outside and there's this kind of voyeuristic aspect it's like it's really kind of raw or like it makes you a little bit un uncomfortable I think or it made me a bit uncomfortable sometimes to hear this like certain stuff but uh, there's also a certain kind of like poetry coming from like the poetry of every day uh, coming out of those conversations, like when I grew up, uh, I was reading a lot, and uh, when I was really young, at least at some point, I started to read Bukowski. So not uh, his poetry, actually, not his uh, text, because I didn't like so much what he writes about women and stuff like this. But in, in his poetry, it was different in his way of approaching things, and there are a lot of poems that were about the working class. And for me, that was a big revelation. You know, I don't come from the U.S., but there are certain things from working class that you see every day, you think it's not beautiful or you're not proud of it. And then suddenly it was making that nice. And so I was always kind of touched by this political gesture. And for me, there was something from that in this uh, project as well. I remember there's one specific conversation also, it's two men, like it was this long conversation talking together. And then at some point, one guy is getting really, really emotional and he says like, he likes to go fishing at the lake next to his place. And then once he found out a ring, and then he put it on Facebook and he was searching for the person and he found the person. But he found out that this person threw the ring because their engagement with the, the guy was broken. And so we didn't want to hear about it. And then he gets really emotional and he's talking about all these rings you find there and people are doing this, you know, and talking about love. Yeah, I don't know. It was just like, you know, not, normally most of the time you just have silence on the radio. And then once you just find this little conversation, it was so good. Yeah, and then some of the political aspect just come by itself is what I was telling you before. Is this like small anecdotes? But behind this, you have a description of a certain social, economical 
situations, uh, you know, the, in the language, uh, the way people are talking or what they are talking about, etc. Um, yeah. Danny is a funny motherfucker. Yeah, you thinking some bad shit already. Open sources. So, I mean, this show started uh, by invitation of uh, Kashmir Radio also because a lot of people involved there are connected to sound studies. Actually, it's kind of like a family of people that know each other. So it was through studying that I met them. And yeah, I mean, the, the idea evolved also a bit over time. At the beginning, it was about the Lomax archives, which I was delving into at the time. And uh, yeah, I didn't think it would be like this, but at the end, I learned a lot from this research, actually, and it became research indeed. And by going through this archive, then I understood some of the problem that this is posing also, and also the richness of what is there and the influence this I had. Like, when you listen to this music, you understand how much how contemporary this is and how much influence it has had on so many music today. And uh, and it's also especially interesting when you look at the social condition of the people doing this, especially for the prison work songs, for example. I mean, if you listen to it, it's like a mix of like contemporary blues, contemporary R&B, a lot of different things. Yet those people were just like dying in prison, super, super um, poor. Also, like before that, people were not paying attention to this. Uh, music so now it is really recognized but at the time you have to think that this was not taken seriously for example you know like not as a proper form of uh, of music yet this for example influenced jazz and etc and also I noticed that I mean for me there was a little bit of a problem in the way that uh, who is doing this archive how do this person approach the people that are in this archive uh, it's not that all is bad it's a really important uh, documentation but still I feel like the problem that we are posed by this are still present nowadays. And uh, yeah, over time, I uh, started to also then invite people to kind of uh, comment about their own local scene also, because I found that one of the problems was also when you don't let people take ownership of their own narrative. And uh, what was interesting for me is also through this process, then, uh, you know, you have discussion with people also, and then you understand also better, or like you communicate with each other what you think your problem in your situations are. And at the same time, it's a way for me to, well, distribute attention in some way, or distribute power when I get attention for myself, then I can share it with others, you know, and the more I grow, then uh, so it's a way to share that. And also it was a way to kind of go against this idea of world music in some way, you know, like I only choose people that are like 
involved in contemporary sounds and uh, because they are involved themselves also they know really well the, the you know the details of uh, what is hidden in the music or the interaction of all this in work what are the challenges what are the accomplishments i mean right now i slow down a little bit because also i mean it's a uh, it's all non-profit also cashmere radio and so you still need time but uh, yeah i'm quite glad of what I have there and sometimes also I'm myself taking over like I think you referred to this one that was about early sound synthesis in the northwest between quotes which was something I've been really interested in because I'm also teaching at uh, the University of Arts of Berlin and through teaching then also I realized all little example I had beside of the usual canon of uh, white European or western men basically uh and i was curious of why it was like this and so i was surprised also that i know a few people are doing it but i was surprised that it was not a bigger thing so actually it started just as a twitter thread we're going back to social media <laughs> just asking the collective intelligence about it and somehow i could see like there was so much interest about that and i thought there were none because there's no proper resources for it and uh, I was so amazed at everything I found there. So this particular radio show that was, uh, I mean, I called it, uh, it was sound synthesis in the non-West. Uh, even non-West is probably not the best word for it, but I was surprised at the time. I did this research for myself. I didn't know that so many people would be interested. So. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course, for me, it's, inter it's interesting and quite important to see something else than the usual possibilities or like the usual figures that you have. Um, and also because then I encountered really interesting figures like Halim Eldab, for example, who was actually reading his text. I understood that he had like really similar interests and he was really forward thinking in terms of the way we'd engage with certain musicians. He did a project in Ethiopia, he's from Egypt, and he was involved in the creation of a music school there and an orchestra. And he went there to work with uh, street musicians. And he met them in bars, etc. They were not really considered in society and he tried to uh, exchange with them and understood like he wrote this article in the New York Times as well, trying to classify the language of their music. And he explained also that he tried to experiment with a 20th century uh, technique, electronic music technique with them. And what he did is that then he talked with the uni music university director and asked him to put them as teacher in the university. And I thought like this was so forward thinking at the time. I don't know any other composer from the canon that would think this way or, you know, if they would have this kind of utopian aspect, it was more in the aesthetic, as I was saying, or in the discourse than really in this kind of really concrete awareness, it feels to me at least. So it's in what came out for me, but it felt like some of this uh, other directions that are not so talked about couldn't continue so much, like maybe in the case of uh, Ali Zera Mashayeki, which is this Iranian composer still living. He did those experiments with computer music that I find that so amazing. But of course, there's also a different uh, political situation in different countries. Uh, once again, it's like access to this, is this access to resources possible or not that, you know, slow down or helps to accelerate what's going on? He's also talking about it in one of his texts, 
were saying that at the time there was this uh, Shiraz music festival in Iran, and it was supposed to be this festival uh, founded by the state, you know, this encounter between East and West, etc. But in fact, it, what happened there is that they were giving all the money to book big Western act, and then he was complaining about the fact that they didn't have even access to a small electronic studio there. And this is what they needed, actually. And he was complaining about the fact that Stockhausen came and then he was going in like helicopters with the Shah of Iran and things like this. So this is what I mean when I talk about context. There's a reason also why it happened this way. There's all these practical aspects that uh, stand in people's way, you know. Um, and also because, I mean, when I think now... In, Contemporary times, for example, there's uh, Ria Malami that is working with uh, this software Apotome a lot on this idea of uh, trying to implement a different tuning via MIDI. And I felt like uh, what he's doing at least is like some of those composers were already naturally trying to do this at the time. But some of us, there's been kind of an interruption or like this idea couldn't continue. So it's, it's interesting to think about what if if there would have been equal opportunities and then everything has been going well, where would we be, you know? I was for a long time really interested in the music from the, I mean, they are known as Pygmy, uh, it's not such a nice word to talk about then, but like, for example, in the last piece I've done for Mers Music, uh, for Ali Meldav, and it was a scale from the Baka people. So they are principally in uh, Cameroon and Congo, <clears throat> and I'm especially interested in Cameroon because this is where my heritage is from. <clears throat> and when I was saying that in this case, for example, of... Uh, in connection to Ali Meldav, and I was interesting to think, oh, what would it be if it would be the same with the Baka people, for example, there, because they are also kind of suffering from this process of uh, going toward modernity, etc. Like they are kind of ostracized a little bit, not uh, respected. They are losing land, uh, their way of doing, etc. And yet they had this really rich uh, musical culture that belongs to the culture of uh, Cameroon. So, I mean, I didn't do a project with them, and this is where I mean, like, there's, it's not always, like, sometimes it's more in the aesthetic, sometimes it would be seeable outside of the aesthetic, so in this case it was more aesthetical. But in a way, through this music, this is how I got to understand polyphony, for example, you know, I don't have a... I learned a bit of music, or I learned to play piano, but not really on a really high level, so I had a bit of understanding of, like, reading notes and things like this. But for example, I never studied polyphony or things like this. So this was my way to enter through it. And um, also what's interesting for me, there is the, this music was also of interest from, for someone like Francis Bebe, for example, who was also pioneering musician in electronic music uh, on the African continent or in Cameroon. And what's interesting is that like, you can compare, for example, I really like the music of Ligeti, who was also inspired by the pygmy, but you can compare or both engage with it. Like Ligeti just uh, engage formally, and then other people ask both social questions. Uh, for example, Francis Bebe as well, like uh, in this one video that is uh, available from him, is saying how um, 
he grew up in Cameroon and there it's kind of the French school as well and he learned to kind of despise those people or that they were not evolved enough and then he's talking about the flute and how much this is like actually a really complex technology or in terms of music making and uh, so I'm more interested by this perspective than the other one also uh, so kind of trying to also reappropriate this kind of heritage it was quite inspiring to also read the writing of George Lewis, for example. Uh, he has this one text that is called Too Many Notes, uh, where too many notes, uh, culture and complexity in Voyager, or something like this. You can find it on the internet. And in it, he's explaining how his software Voyager works, but also all the way he programmed it was inspired by uh, Afro-American way of doings. Um, and I feel like this is maybe an approach that I relate more because I was always a little bit annoyed by this idea that technology is neutral and uh, certain knowledge is neutral. You know, it's not like you have a perspective on it. It's just like this, like this idea of neutrality, like rationality, you know. So this is something that is quite present in what I do always. Let's say that by now I knew already how much the way story is told is biased, so I would have been mainly more surprised to not encounter anything. So I was not surprised to encounter, encounter all those things. Um, and maybe I was more 
touched more by some things than others, and I already uh, mentioned Aliza Ramashayeki from Iran. And what's surprising maybe about him is that, uh, yeah, that is not more talked about because I feel like it's really interesting work. And uh, there's also in Japan, um, we have their own, they had their own electronic music studio at this time when uh, a lot of electronic music studio formed. So maybe the fact that uh, people organize themselves and have the means, you know, an electronic music studio, then why? Uh, why not talk about it? And also because like Japan has a lot of influence in terms of technology, at least like really purely technology. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is also so much more than what I did because what I found is things that were documented, and there are so many things that are not documented. Like I didn't talk about it so much in the show, but uh, there is uh, uh, Paul Purgas that did this research about uh, electronic music in India, like this electronic music studios. And he said that he found these things uh, somewhere, like it was not uh, listened to or not used. So I'm, I'm sure there are so many uh, instances of this. And also, like, I was talking about the materialistic aspect of this history before, who had access to what. So in, in cases of uh, those different composers, I talked about a lot of them are maybe not from working class, for example, you know, like, because you should be able to travel and things like this. and. Uh, so if you're suddenly in an environment where people start to be interested in these weird things you do, then it's easier maybe to document what you do or just to, to um, continue with your artistic practice. But I'm sure there must be must have been some people that just, you know, sitting at home trying some weird things, but uh, nobody listened to it. So there's much more than this. Who else is there? Uh, uh, Juan Blanco is quite well known actually already but he was he did the electronic music studio in Cuba as well so and also I mean the more you research in this direction also the more it maybe makes you reconsider your idea of what is uh, computer music or you know experimental electronic music or this kind of academic thing that is so centered on to especially Europe and the US also to a certain extent but it's a really limited way of understanding what computer music is and this is why, like, often when I do the show, I don't only play older things, but also contemporary ones that I feel like could relate sonically to what I hear. And I feel like uh, in some things I heard from that are released on Yege Yege, for example, I mean, for me, the vocabulary somehow can be related to computer music. Is uh, We know it when you use that term, even though it's not a reference for the person playing it, you know. But uh, for me, this is also a way to kind of uh, open this term. I mean, maybe some things in certain small corners are changing slowly or some perception are changing slowly. I feel like, in a way, it doesn't matter so much. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't matter for a lot of those people to be recognized by uh, small academias of uh, new music or computer music. So, And I think it would be okay if this uh, sphere would be also on the side. You know, I think the really the problem is just... Uh, where resources are located, basically, you know? If everybody has equal access to resources, then who cares if, uh, you know, this academic doesn't <laughs> recognize what I do as serious music. The, the wall installation was some kind of uh, part of an effort in many chapters by Savi Contemporary, that this is uh, art space in Berlin. 
to document uh, the practice of Ali Melda, which is this uh, Egyptian composer who is dead today, but uh, he did uh, one of the first, like the first apparently uh, known electroacoustic piece, uh, tape piece, before Pierre Schaeffer, etc. And uh, yeah, they invited artists, uh, myself included, to uh, dive into his work and kind of respond to his, to it with his own practice. What I found interesting in his work, and that is not so documented or not so obvious, is his interest for class, actually. Uh, I think his father was a social worker or something like this. So, so like before being a composer, he was an agricultural engineer. In some ways, I found that he was some sort of rhythm analyst. I mean, he's talking a lot about the rhythm of the people. I was talking with Camilla Metwelli, who is one of the curators there, that she did a lot of research about him. And she also met him before he died and did an interview with him. And apparently, like he mentioned, that he was always like this anecdote that always stayed with him, where he was thinking of... Um, was it called people that work at the sea um, on the the harbor, and so the way they the 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 rhythm of the work songs, like oh they song sing together to uh, help themselves working or through this rhythm of work. So it's something that he knows about, like he's totally aware. So I kind of abstracted it <laughs> toward my own interest. But I was researching and I found these studies that is from New Zealand. I think someone tried to do a studies of the the probability, the absolute probability of doors to be open. So how oh, likely is that that a door will be open? Which is kind of a funny theme for a study, um, especially because it's really limited set of samples. But the aim of this study is also to evaluate if a building is safe in terms of fire, so this is for working reasons. And uh, this study is interesting if you look at it more in between the line because it's a lot of just like uh, scientific stuff, a lot of maths for really simple results and a lot of like technological uh, intervention through those sensors, etc. And then, but you see the human factors in between the line and they are saying, oh yeah, Okay, we did all those studies uh, really rational and really neutral, as I was saying before, but actually we can't really calculate how much this influenced the behavior of the worker because also the the boss wants them wants the building to meet the safety request, etc. So probably he's trying to force them to pay attention to the doors and also the fact that they are surveilled and they see those sensors that influence their their uh, behavior. So for me, this is a good example of what I said before, like those numbers are presented as neutral, but in fact, you probably have a lot of different uh, social dynamics happening behind. So uh, I, I took those numbers and uh, sonified it. I, I took this study in particular also because someone Savi put me next to the exit door there, like at the back of the building, where it's more like exit door for workers, actually. It's not really part of always part of the... Um, exhibition space. So this reflects one part of his interest and his other is like the, his interest for drums and frequency. So uh, I sonified it based on the work schedule, basically this nine, nine to five work schedule. So drums during the day to kind of uh, accompany you through work and then these different kind of like more floating frequencies for resting time. Um, 
So it was a comment about this door. Back door. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> The Venice Biennale, this project I did with, uh, it was Natasha Sudo-Appelman, that uh, she did the German Pavilion, and uh, it was a few years ago, and for me it was quite an uh, influential experience, because she's uh, really politically engaged, she, she's really aware of those structural questions also in the art world, and somehow with her I realized that it's, it is possible to still have those positions even though you're in the biggest sphere of power in some way. And so it was really interesting to observe her. For example, she confronted the, it was the, in English, the uh, German foreign minister, because her pavilion was about, uh, was named um, Anchor Centrum, and was Anchor Center, it's uh, was center in Germany where they put uh, refugees that have no legal status yet and they are a little bit in an administrative limbo. And the idea was that uh, because the tradition is that the foreign minister, because the foreign ministry is funding this pavilion, so the foreign minister opens every year the pavilion and she wanted him to symbolically open the an anchor center. I thought it was quite strong. I mean, there were a lot of tension in this moment, and of course, there's this dichotomy between what happens and what the media write about, etc. So this doesn't necessarily translate. And I feel like this is a part of her work that maybe people didn't necessarily see. If you just go to consume the Venice Biennale and just see the different pavilion, you know, it's totally. Also, the way she worked with us, um, I believe she kind of wanted to go beyond kinship. She didn't know any of us uh, composers that she invited. Um, and also she invited people that are not necessarily a biggest name, etc. And uh, she was really present somehow, uh, you know, like she didn't, she didn't feel like it was her work, but I felt like there were a lot of dialogue with her. She really involved her in everything that was going on. And the um, events she organized there, she really wanted to do it with the people that live there, so with the local community. 
and not participate in this uh, like kind of erasure of local life which is happening in Venice because of all the different big events and things like that. And also when we were then there, I realized that a lot of the pavilion were, uh, you know, about decolonization or trying to showcase different identities, etc. But then she was pointing out, yeah, but the people that are cleaning the toilets are all migrants or, you know, people of color, etc. So there's this uh, it's almost about perception of people. People are not able to uh, see those structures around them. And uh, so she really made me aware of this, and that it was important to think about this as an artist. It's not only the aesthetic or your work. There's also a lot of things going around. The only direction she gave us was that we should use the sound of the whistle either as a main element or as sole element in the composition. So this was quite challenging because, uh, yeah, the sound of the whistle is really particularly really limited and also not so enjoyable. And, uh, yeah, she wanted us to use this sound because the sound installation for her was like a reference to some events that happen in those anchor centrum in Germany, so those places where you have uh, refugees that are in this kind of like administrative uh, limbo. And uh, often the police would come and then check people or make a mess somehow. And uh, some of them found this way to self-organize through whistle, like blowing a whistle as hard as possible, I think, uh, to make them back away. So she wanted to kind of reference this. And uh, for my work, I kind of did four small kind of like fictional piece or like pieces based on the fictional ideas. Uh, I was interested in this um, sound of the what is called the boatswain's call. So this is a kind of whistle that was used at sea um, and is really loud and high pitch. And it was used to be uh, for people to be able to hear each other over the sea because it's really loud, etc. And uh, since a lot of people travel over the Mediterranean, I was interested in reusing those kind of things as a way of uh, self-organization, you know, uh, or the, the language of uh, the Morse code, which were used by the military. So it's kind of a way to maybe reuse uh, law enforcement technique for yourself, you know, like things that oppress you, but to liberate yourself. The thing with the Morse code is that it's a de deprecated language. It's not used anymore. And so this is why it was interesting, this idea of reusing it, you know, because it's as a, somehow a language or efficient one and it's not used anymore. So you can kind of like reuse this kind of knowledge. And the last uh, sentence that was officially used for Moscow was calling all this is our last cry before or eternal silence. So this is one of the pieces based on this uh, on this message. Uh, it was transmitted by the French Navy. And so there's another piece that is called Message to the Use. And in this one, I use a dog whistle. So the thing with dog whistle is that they are almost above the earring range for humans or at the threshold. And uh, what's interesting with this threshold is that then older people, like the older you get and the less you can hear those frequencies. So I was imagining as a way of for young people to communicate with each other, you know, because there's a lot of young people there and kind of pass each other messages uh, to warn themselves of uh, police presence without the police or like all people to to be aware of what they are saying to each other. So yeah, this is kind of fictional in those way. And uh, 
I often work like this, or at least in, I mean, I don't have this experience that most people have, but I know that in my life, for example, sometimes if there were some problematic situation, I would often use, uh, especially, like, I mean, when I was younger, use imagination, you know, to, this is often what children do. You know, you use like uh, something uh, wrong is happening at your house and then you imagine it's like a monster or like you imagine there's some fairies that are coming to save you and things like this. So it's this kind of magical thought also a little bit. It's also the language of uh, legends and like, uh, you know, religious texts, etc. I mean, maybe a real historical event happened, but then you have this whole story around that makes it uh, a proper story with a big S somehow. Also, the message that is whistled is ACAB, because ACAB, you know, is those English notes. And uh, it was interesting because ACAB actually is, is something you cannot write or say in some way. It's kind of forbidden, so uh, you can't hear it if you don't know about it, basically, also. So it's kind of this uh, double code. I mean, in some way, everything is political, <laughs> so... I rarely make a direct comment about a certain political situation because often I don't feel like, I mean, someone maybe it's, through art is not the best way of doing it, you know, and I'm not sitting in a Congress or things like this. But uh, yeah, I prefer this this way of doing also like, through, through a more personal or fictional lens. I mean, the, this idea of uh, frequencies, threshold of perception, etc. it's really like long-standing interest uh, in sound art or sound, you know. But I feel like maybe the critique is that it was always a kind of scientific interest, so it was considered as this kind of neutral space. So maybe this is what I'm criticizing there, like this space is never neutral. So I like to reuse those kind of uh, thematic, but reintroduce them in certain contexts. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, notes or frequencies, is like you don't perceive them the same way depending on your context, your experience of listening, etc. So this is maybe what interests me or what I felt in the past also was often not uh, talked about. Well, I feel like it gives me more freedom than if I would work with uh, Ableton, for example, just to cite one. I feel like the, the idea of having like this timeline is already such a strong uh, visual indicator of how you have to think about music. 
So, I mean, you can do this in Maxim SP or you could do something else. It's, I feel like it's a bit more flexible in this way. Uh, and this is actually quite important for me to not think about music in this timeline aspect. I mean, it's also a legacy from me doing installations before, but this is kind of why I also wanted to play quadraphonic because I started to think in terms of situation and events and staticity. And then this influenced also the way my compositions are developing, for example. I mean, in the term of multivocal, it's quite obvious because it's really kind of static, long durational, etc. It was also a quadraphonic thing. So in the same time, there are things happening in space that are not necessarily timely events, you know, like in the term of uh, development of a composition. So, I mean, I'm still discovering the edges of this software, actually. I'm realizing it more and more. The more you get into uh, algorithmic composition, for example, the more you realize, actually, what are the limitations also of things you can do there. Uh, but also, I have, like, kind of something I realized lately, this kind of anecdotes, because... Uh, so, it was made at Earcam, but it's basically a kind of American software. It was made by an American person. And then I realized that one of the preset samples in there is the voice of this Native American man. And then you think about it that this is this blank page also, and I was like, oh, interesting uh, correlation. I mean, some of there's like signs of actually in which cultural landscape it was made and all it was thought about, I feel. This is kind of a giveaway in terms of the culture. I don't think it's realistic to expect a framework that is neutral, actually. And it's kind of the point also. Uh, I feel like to understand how something is built and you have always have this feedback of the machine, but uh, someone else's mind, basically. And this is what is interesting. So I'm not really bothered by this, but this is also why lately I felt like uh, maybe I need to learn Super Collider or something like this. It would be interesting for me to start to go away a little bit from my ways of doing, even though I discover always new ways of doing in Max MSP. But still, I feel like because, at least from what I can tell, the majority of music making right now is made in things like Ableton Live, or people use hardware. If you use a sequencer, for example, a lot of people use sequencers, and they don't know how to think about rhythm outside of this sequencer, or maybe they, they play drums or something like this, you know? So I still feel like it's interesting to do something else than this, but also like, uh, I don't know, for example, lately, uh, yeah, I've, I was somewhat dialoguing more with people that are really music producer. And then to, it was interesting for me to see how they think about making their music. It became totally different for me, basically.
I think when I was learning music, for example, it was much more it was much more intuitive for me to understand rhythm and melody. Like sometimes like when you need to sync, for example, I couldn't really understand like we had to sync the notes. I couldn't really relate it to a pitch or, you know, like there was this kind of abstraction happening in the melody in my own experience only. And I didn't have this with rhythm. So I had this attraction for it. And probably also a lot of early music that I listened to were really rhythmical. Like, I don't know. I was listening to a lot of uh, R&B when I was really young. Uh, it's really rhythmical uh, genre also, hip hop as well. I was interested in researching music from Cameroon, for example. I mean, in general, in Cameroon or in the African continent, rhythm is a strong aspect of it. Even though it's interesting, I think I need to read this book entirely, but I think the thesis of Francis Bebe in his book about African music is that the main aspect is not rhythm, but it's a communication, I think, something like this. So I think it comes, yeah, from personal mm, attraction for that. And also because, yes, I realized then that uh, also rhythm is something that most people have in common in some way. Or a lot of people have this organic approach to it and they have kind of this yeah, intu intuitive understanding of it. And uh, also, for example, this book is not necessarily an influence or maybe a, a recent influence, but I was reading a Rhythm Analysis by Lefebvre. And this is kind of what he's saying inside as well. That's everybody has a common kind of understanding of rhythm they don't necessarily they're not necessarily able to explain it with words but there's some kind of commonality there even though uh, depending on culture we don't have the same way of moving or you know like the same attraction towards certain rhythms so anyway there was this aspect of it that i felt was a bit more maybe saying democratic is a bit too much but uh accessible yeah, accessible is better better word. And also because, I mean, we were talking about interfaces before and limitation of it, etc. And then I was realizing that a lot of those sequencers, etc., they really push you to do 4-4. Four, four. And uh, in this part of the world, at least it's like you, you hear a lot about that, especially in Berlin, you know, it's like the city of techno and it's like, it's so present. So I wanted to work with something else outside of that as well because it's not necessarily uh it's also something else that uh halim eldab is talking about in a text that he was teaching children and he was criticizing the way music is taught in um, western countries because he felt like the through this education there's a reason that are imposed on children that are not natural like this 4-4 etc and he was saying children have their own rhythm that don't fit in there uh, which kind of resonates with me or uh, with my approach. Rhythm is really related to mathematics as well, but for me it also addresses this kind of like division between body and mind that I don't like, or like this fetishism of the mind and intellectualization, etc. Uh, it's kind of a fusion of both for me because you can have things that are really, yeah, as I was saying, complex with a lot of concept behind, but then it's something that you first and foremost experience and you feel. And for me, this is interesting as a phenomenon. I mean, at that time when I was listening to R&B and hip hop, I was also starting to discover all the things. I was also listening to Ligeti in the same time I was, I was listening to Destiny's Child, for example. And I say this because this is interesting because I think early on, when you didn't absorb yet, those kind of like uh, 
social stigmas that there is around certain music. This is really tied to identity, no? So I was open to everything. And then I would, for me, from where I was, because I didn't have, I wasn't in an environment where I was communicating about that. I was just like consuming it by myself. It felt like uh, Ligeti is as interesting as Distinction, you know? I wouldn't like judge like one is higher than the other. You look for different things in it, basically. I mean, especially if you think about like, then I started to understand that they are producers in pop music and then they are putting those more complex ideas. Some of these ideas come from experimental music. And then, you know, you look into what are their references or like if you look into samples for hip hop, for example, where it comes from, and then you start to discover all the, this hidden musical references. Um, this is how I operated at the time. I mean, jumping sonsodies, I already was interested in it when I arrived. I was just didn't feel like I could be a participant in that. And then arriving here, it felt like, I, in fact, I could be. Even though at the time I had interested in it, I think I didn't yet have an understanding of sound as itself. And for example, I realized I was talking about Ligeti before because I always wanted something more than what we are taught. I hate, like, I hated Mozart and Bach and this kind of stuff. It was so boring for me. <clears throat> and this was something dif different or interesting. And then later reading about him, I realized that he composed for electronic music. And then it makes sense because then it kind of reflects in his work for instrumental music as well. And then I understood that what was interesting for me there actually it was it was about sound it was not about an instrument it was not about notes it was about sound I mean, this might change in the future. I don't think it will characterize my music forever. For example, we just did this collaboration with the Uli Shabara, and I believe that uh, it's not that minimal what we did in the end. But it reflects how I'm working in terms of programming, actually. I build little systems as well. I mean, I'm all... Con I would do one patch that do one thing in some way, that is one composition, and then I don't build an instrument or something like this. And in general, I'm interested by one behavior, and I'm going to try to do as much with this one behavior. But also at the time of multivocal, then he was made for this uh, sleeping event. And so I think I also did something where it's not about uh, waiting for the next development in the music, etc. It's more that you have a static situation that is slowly shifting, so it also changes the way you relate to the music and the way you experience the space. I was maybe a little bit angry towards entertainment. I didn't want it to be too entertaining <laughs> in some way. And in general, I don't want things to be like unnecessary things to cover something that is not working, for example, you know. So this was a little bit my way of thinking at the time as well. No excuses. Um, <laughs> I always feel like what I do, there's always this element where I can say it's a study. So I'm always doing studies before the next studies. <laughs> and so when you do a study, you concentrate on something, you know, like a behavior or something like this. And I think this is also my approach still today in some way. 
And every time I realize one piece, but I always see it as part of a process. Every time bringing me towards something new. If there's not really a goal, probably, I mean, hopefully. Because otherwise that would be a little bit, uh, make me a little bit anxious. <laughs> there is a goal and then at some point it's finished. So it's not that I have fetishism of minimalism or something like this, but it was also something about holding attention, focusing, also losing this focus. But uh, yeah, the travel is more important than the goal. I mean, in general, for example, I don't like this culture of uh, technology fetishism. This way for a while I felt like, oh, I have this no gear policy or something like this. So still today I just have one controller and some people are like disappointed. I don't have more. <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, but this is what I want. You know, you don't get what you want. You have to listen to the music. So it was more about some old gestures that are about uh, satisfying certain social expectations that don't bring anything for the music itself. And like, for example, having a lot of gears, it doesn't mean that uh, your music will be awesome, but it's more like it's actually it's about visual culture, more about sound culture. So all this uh, visual culture aspect that I relate to that, I wanted, I wanted it out, actually. That's why I wanted to play in the dark often as well. Like, you don't see, you just listen. Because I didn't want to give into this, like, uh, fetishisms of feels, things I think are problematic. I was in Tokyo, and I played in a small place called Nimandenatsu, which is a place more for, I think, noise music, etc. And uh, it's funny because they advertise it online as the loudest sound system in the world. And they didn't have quad, for example, there, and they just found two guitar amplifiers. And of course, maybe in terms of sound, then uh, you don't have the same uh, levels in front or behind, but like the whole situation was perfect, <laughs> you know? Perfect in its in imperfection, <laughs> because also it's tied to meeting the scene there and having conversation. You know, there's all this human aspect that for me is part of my experience. Is what I care about. So yeah, actually, my idea of uh, perfection is like this, like <laughs> imperfect. I mean, it might change later, but also for me, this culture of like you know, you need to have this perfect. Uh, sound system and then like this perfect room and you can play it everywhere it's also related to this gear fetishism in some way so i like to leave room for mistakes and uh, things that are not uh, planned 
A little bit to DIY punk. <laughs> I chose quad because it's a standard indeed. I mean, I've been able to play quad in most places where I've been going. And also I've been working with a few different multi-channel systems. And every time I'm thinking to myself, I don't need that many speakers. In fact, you know, four is enough uh, for having giving people a sensation of space, for having interesting effects, etc. And I feel like most of the time uh, it's overkill, like those big uh, multi-channel systems also like some new things that i start to do now is for stereo also because you know the pandemic has been happening and then there were those streams i haven't been doing so many streams but the the commission for mass music for example well it has to be stereo so i didn't think about quad in some way it worked with quad but i hear that it makes less sense so I'm not also trapped in that. It corresponded to a time in my life. I can come back to it or I can just move to stereo. I'm not uh, married to this format. So yes, uh, the, the main reason why quad, it was this uh, idea of accessibility, basically. Uh, even though some people sometimes are still scared that when you say quad, they're like, oh, it's going to be too complicated. But in fact, it's just that they don't know what it is. You just need four speakers and then I have four out and I do everything in MaxMSP. You don't need fancy things. So it was the best format I found to play with space, give a sense of space uh, without becoming too elitist and uh, requiring too much. Often uh, in the literature I encounter, or typically the literature you encounter when you, you are in sound studies or this kind of thing, it's like you consider space as this uh, mathematical space or scientific one. You talk about the reflection of sounds, how it behaves, etc. But then once again, you find yourself with this kind of neutral place, as if you can kind of reach this kind of uh, yeah, universal neutral environment. And so I like to reintroduce uh, the, the social dynamics in there. I mean, for me, a space this is where uh, social encounters happen. Basically, this is all I would define most mainly the space. Uh, it's interesting when it's inhabited, when someone is there to perceive what's going on. So, I mean, in this way, I'm really anthropocentric person <laughs> and really based on the, uh, yeah, the perception of the human. Because there's still so much to say, I find. Um, and um, I mean, maybe when I make something musical, it's less evident per se in the pieces themselves. But it's, I think, because music already in itself is already a social, social practice. So the format itself is already a social practice. I don't need to necessarily restate it uh, for the for the aesthetic, except that this is also why, for example, rhythm is interesting for me. If you play in a club, it's totally different than if you play outside or if you play in a concert place. Yeah, this is my, my main interest in this, and this was interesting because <clears throat> right now I'm in Malmö, doing this residency in Incomes in Sweden. And then they have those um, traffic lights that, you know, they make a sound 
when you can pass and then there's a lot of them and then I was thinking oh but this is like what I'm trying to do actually because you have this big space with different traffic lights and at different time some of them are ticking and then this activates the space or this creates the social dynamic you know like this put order um, and this is more like something that repeats like some kind of situations not something where you wait for the developments um, so this is kind of what I'm doing. It's really an unromantic way of saying it, but I feel like it's relating somehow. Another installation I've done recently uh, that I didn't document yet, but it was in uh, Bergheim in Berlin in the Panorama Bar. And uh, they wanted me to do a piece for the Panorama Bar uh, sound system. So I digged into like, uh, yeah, IDM tutorials uh, to make club music and uh, uh, sample packs and so things like this. And uh, I, so I worked with this idea just of the drop and also like this kind of idea of the. Or do you build adrenaline in people? Or do you kind of manipulate people in this space, you know? So it's kind of this thing that is building all the time and then never going there and you just stop, you know? Um, so the idea was to kind of play with this frustration because it was also like the exhibition was a comment on the lockdown. So it's this idea that we're starting to, we try to like give you the adrenaline again, but then in the same time, we're kind of disillusioned or it's not really starting. And so while diving into those um, sample packs, I also I realized that because you have sample packs, especially to build this moment, there's like a kind of art to build that. And so there's sample packs with voices also that you can add on top of that. And it's so interesting to see which association people have, like what kind of words they should put there. And so a lot of, uh, I found like those, it's a lot of male uh, male voices or like sexy women voices because I guess it's mainly like male audience somehow and uh, you have this male saying yeah I'm a predator or like drop the bomb or you know like I'm hustling so it's like this uh, kind of comments on your everyday life things that you're trying to forget when you're in a club because for me like this club is also as this function of catharsis you know uh, you have it in different uh, culture or different historical time. You have different way of having this kind of catharsis for dance. And I feel like this is what the club nowadays stands for. Like for a lot of people that have this nine to five jobs during the day, like suddenly they are going there and they are being themselves. Um, so I was interested in playing with this. And uh, it was also 
good to see how people would react to it when I play it because a lot of people automatically start to dance, you know, when they hear the beat and they hear this like building up, they're like, yeah, and then it stops and they're like, oh, what's going on? You know, it's like, it's almost like a kind of automatical functions you have in your body to respond to that. And I feel like this only works when you are in this specific space, you know, I could show it somewhere else in a church or something like this, but it doesn't mean the same, you know. It's, it works because in the same time it activates the space socially and historically as well. So maybe what my interest is uh, whenever, like the few times I do installation is also all just adding a sound. So something also immaterial and not visible would totally alter your perception of how you walk through the space and reveal certain, certain things that are hidden, like yeah, certain dynamics that you don't necessarily uh, see if you uh, you don't point your finger fingers toward it. <laughs> <laughs>